What can a Simon and Garfunkel song teach us about our relationship with anxiety? Instead of doing battle with our anxiety, could it help to see her as a friend and ally? In this episode, I share my own personal experience of how anxiety has shown up in my life and how it has limited what I enjoy doing and also potentially ruined my professional career as a lawyer and how, I hope, I can find a better way forward. This is The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks, how can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer. And like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. How does anxiety show up in my life? Well, let me count the ways. I started to list all the situations and anticipations that make me anxious a while back when I started this project. It runs to a couple of pages of A4. I'll be sharing 10 of my many anxieties with you in a later episode called Things That Make Me Anxious, which I recorded with film producer River Oosley-Brown. For now, I'm going to go deep into just two of the major anxieties that have dominated my life. Number one driving at night. I used to love driving in my 20s. I would hire different types of cars and go away for weekends with friends. One holiday, a friend and I did a road trip in America from San Francisco to the Grand Canyon and on to LA. I loved driving so much in America that I revved up the gas and we ended up being stopped by a cop for speeding along Route 66. And then something changed. I'm not sure what, but in the last few decades, I've been very anxious about driving. That anxiety has stopped me going away for weekends while I was living in London because I couldn't face the idea of the drive out of London and back in again. I now live in Oxford, and while the roads here feel less scary... I don't drive at night now, so that makes it tricky for meeting friends in pubs or restaurants around Oxfordshire for evenings out. When I think about driving at night, I feel a knot in my stomach. It's forming now even as I'm telling you about it. My chest feels tight and my breathing becomes shallower. My lips tighten around each other. My fingers want to clench and I can feel the beginnings of sweat on my palms. It's not a full-blown panic attack, but the physical discomfort of anxiety is here. In my mind, I'm picturing darkness around me as I'm driving. There is a small patch of brightness where the headlights show me a tiny area of the road in front of me. Black tarmac in the black night. Only two white lines pen me in. The broken line on the right, flashing strobe-like as the car whizzes along. 
The road keeps changing direction underneath me, very fast. I'm steering to keep within the white lines, but only just. The direction changes again, and I have to react quickly. But what if I'm not quick enough? What if my eyes and hands and feet do not work in unison smoothly enough? Glaring into my eyes are cars coming at me on the other side of the road, pairs of dazzling lights blinding me again and again. Behind, there are more moving lights up into my back windscreen, shards of reflected light darting at me from the rearview mirror. Black and white, black and white, light and dark, light and dark. What if, momentarily blinded, I fail to turn when the road turns? What if I see the curve too late or I misjudge the distances? The car skids. A wheel hits the raised inside verge. It flies into the air, twisting and turning. Or we ram into another car, metal screeching on metal. What if? What if? And so I avoid driving at night. When friends invite me out to an evening meal in a countryside pub just outside Oxford, I make an excuse. When I'm out on a country walk, especially in winter or autumn, when it gets dark mid-afternoon, I aim to be done and driving home while there is still some daylight. I do not go out into the dark countryside to enjoy the dark night, to gaze up at the stars and galaxies. I feel foolish and useless. I feel like a wimp, or a little old lady, afraid of the world, afraid of the night. I stay at home, safe in my house, safe in my living room, missing out on lovely experiences. My only company on the sofa is my anxiety, my angsty Annie, wringing her hands and worrying about the dangers of driving in the dark. Anxiety number two, work life. For all my working life, I was a successful lawyer. And during the whole of my career of several decades, anxiety sat in my gut every working day. I worried that I did not know the law well enough to protect my clients' interests properly. I lived in fear that my ignorance would be caught out. I felt that I was always on the back foot when it came to procedures, negotiations, and in fact, everything about legal life. There were mornings when I would dry wretch in the bathroom before going to work. I felt at a distance from my colleagues, all these lawyers who seemed to love their work, who derived vigour and energy from the deals they worked so hard on. It was as if I watched them from inside a bubble, detached and disengaged, wondering how it was that they could seem so full of life. I did not want to work late. I did not want to work over weekends. I did not want to be there. One morning, I woke up sobbing and could not make myself get out of bed. I could not stop crying. Thinking about getting onto the tube and going to work made me want to scream. I thrashed around in the bedclothes, but there was nowhere to run. I went to see my GP, 
In those days, mental health issues felt shameful, a potential black mark on your career and CV. She signed me off for a few months with glandular fever. Then I went back and trudged on for another 20 years and became a well-respected and influential senior lawyer within my specialist field. But I felt like a failure. I would never make partner. I made my billing targets, despite not working long hours like the other lawyers. I longed for the weekends and holidays. When I caught flu, it was a relief to stay home and in bed for a couple of days. My life was passing me by as I woke up and went into the office day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I was tired all the time. I held it all in under a heavy-duty blanket of depression, strapped down tighter and tighter with each passing year. And I would get angry. I was angry with myself, angry with the situation. Anger gave me energy. It propelled me out from under the blanket of depression. I felt more powerful. So, after retching in the bathroom in the morning, I would stride out into the world to go to work. I pushed my way onto the train, jostled the other commuters, bagged myself a seat. At the other end, I charged across London Bridge on my way into the office in the city, furious at the other people in my way. In the flow of anger, there was no room for anxiety. This energy proved that I was not weak. I was not a failure. I was somebody. I got on with my day's work in my full suit of armour. I was tough. I was hard. Hard on myself and also hard on others. I could not tolerate their weakness, their uncertainty, their anxiety and their sadness the same way that I could not tolerate those feelings in me. In my struggle with anxiety, I have tried to reach a state where I can no longer feel its horrible grip on me. You know, that sick feeling in my stomach, a painful tension in my muscles, the cramping iron grip on my throat and tongue, negative thoughts going round and round in my head, dread and fear that can be so paralysing. I've read lots of self-help and psychology books, worked on it in therapy sessions all in the hope of getting rid of anxiety, or controlling it. Thinking about those metaphorical words we all use about our relationship with anxiety, we struggle with anxiety, or suffer from it, unless we battle it, fight against it, control it, suppress it. These words and metaphors expose how we, as a society, and as individuals, see anxiety as an enemy, a foe, something evil, an antagonist, an aggressor, a monster, something that has power over us. The flip side of using the imagery of battle means that those of us who have not vanquished this evil force can then be seen only as losers who lost our fight against anxiety. We have succumbed 
or surrendered, or given up. We are overwhelmed by a force greater than ourselves, too weak and useless to be a hero like St George facing down the dragon. This imagery makes us into heroes or victims, so it is an easy step to judge those people who are not boldly doing battle, or else we pity these poor, pathetic, weak souls, and we judge ourselves in the same way, harshly and critically, for giving in to our panic, or we feel self-pity for being helpless victims to anxiety. It's not very healthy, is it? Nor very helpful. Being harsh on myself for my worry has never actually got rid of the feeling, nor of the swirling thoughts in my head. I still have the sick-making knot in my stomach. My anxious thoughts are still thundering round and round the racetrack in my head, worrying about whatever, about being late, about my friend being angry with me. Only now, on top of all that, I feel bad about myself. I'm thinking, I'm a loser, I'm useless, if only I could just stop feeling anxious. And all of it gets added into the galloping, frothing horses in my head. You can hear the commentator, can't you? I'm a loser is coming up on the inside. She's overtaking I'm going to be late. And now my friend will be angry with me has stumbled. And I'm so useless has the advantage. She's jumped that hurdle and is streaking ahead. But I'm a loser is still out front. Will she make it across the finish line? Yes. Yes. I'm a loser is across and I'm a loser is the winner. (laughs) I don't want to be a loser. So my only alternative is to be a winner. There's no other option in this universe where the language requires us to be either a hero or a victim. So I do battle with my anxiety. My weapon is anger. I protect myself against anxiety. Attack before I'm attacked. I'm defensive or aggressive in turns. Or... I avoid situations where my anxiety kicks in big time. I withdraw, detach, hide behind excuses. Tell myself, I don't need this. I'm better off doing something else. And I feel in control, in charge of the situation. I'm not a loser. I'm the boss of my anxiety. But I'm just kidding myself. I'm not really at peace whether I do battle with my anxiety and the world or avoid them. I'm not really in control of my anxiety. There is a continued unease beneath the hard shell of anger and timid self-justification. Anxiety has still been the boss of me. It may not be obviously upfront in full view, but it's there, in the background, like an unseen puppeteer or the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain controlling the levers of my life. I know that because something feels off. I'm not truly happy or confident in myself or in what I have decided. Especially with anger, I've made others' lives more difficult. Those strangers on the train I jostled past. 
I've upset and hurt people, especially those closest to me, with my angry words and behaviour. I'm not as kind as I would like to be with those in my life when they too have gone through periods of anxiety. I don't like the anxiousness inside me, and so I don't like it in them. In some ways, unacknowledged anxiety is perhaps more dangerous and more powerful than when it is right there in your body and bones, shaking you up in its talon-like grip. In the background, controlling my choices without my knowing it, anxiety has limited my life. It has picked fights with people around me. It has replaced openness and friendliness with detachment. Is there another way? Please tell me there is another way. Over the last few weeks, as I've been reflecting on anxiety, that old Simon and Garfunkel song would play in my head, like on a radio somewhere in another room. At first, it sounded quite tinny, and then, as the days passed, it grew richer and more prominent in my mind, until it was almost as if Paul and Art were singing huskily right in my ear. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Darkness. That may as well be my anxiety. It can feel like I'm all alone in the dark sometimes when I'm in the company of my anxious thoughts. I went online and googled the sound of silence. According to Wikipedia, Simon and Garfunkel got a record deal based on an audition they did singing this song. They then recorded an acoustic version for their first album in 1964. Can you imagine their excitement? Two young, unknown singer-songwriters making their first LP. What dreams they must have had. But the album bombed. We can feel their disappointment. Their one moment of potential glory and nothing happened. They remained obscure musicians. They went their separate ways. Paul Simon went back to England and carried on gigging in folk clubs. Art Garfunkel went back to Columbia University to finish his MA in art history. But a year later, in 1965, the song began to be played more and more on the radio. The song's producer, Tom Wilson, remixed the track with electric instruments and drums, creating the sound that we know today. The remix was released in late 1965 and reached number one of the Billboard chart in 1966. This sudden success brought the two back together, and the rest, as they say, is history. But what is the song about? The lyrics paint a dystopic vision of cold and damp, Neon lights splitting the night, people talking without speaking. What is going on? What is this darkness? Why have they come to talk with it again? What is the sound of silence anyway? So I googled some more, and the story behind the song gave me goosebumps. At Columbia, Art Garfunkel, then studying architecture, had a roommate, Sandy Greenberg whose dream was to become a lawyer. They hung out together. Garfunkel would play his guitar and Greenberg would be the DJ. 
The air was always filled with music, Greenberg said in an interview for People.com. One day, suddenly, at a baseball game, Greenberg lost his sight. A short while later, he went completely blind. At first, the doctors did not know what the cause was, but eventually they realised it was the result of glaucoma, which had not been properly diagnosed for many years. There was no cure, no hope of recovery. He would be blind for life. For a vigorous young man with everything ahead of him, it was devastating. He left college and went home to his parents' home in a dark, depressive funk. Reading Greenberg's story, I felt unnerved. One of the things that has always frightened me is going blind. I have a family history of glaucoma, and I'm on the edge of having the disease myself. There is no cure for glaucoma, but it can be managed by eye drops and, if necessary, surgery to delay and hold it at bay for as long as possible. My mother, now in her early 80s, was diagnosed in her mid-20s. She's on eye drops and has had surgery and has good vision for her age. Others in my family are on eye drops. I'm so far just on the brink. I don't have glaucoma and I don't need drops. I'm grateful that so far we all continue to enjoy our sight. Art Garfunkel cajoled Greenberg to return to college. He became Greenberg's eyes around campus and for reading. He made sure to keep the things in their college room as Greenberg had memorised it. He referred jokingly to himself as darkness, Greenberg's darkness, the voice who would help him navigate through this new, frightening phase of his life. And then one day, they were making their way through Grand Central Station, And Garfunkel said he had to leave Greenberg because he, Garfunkel, had an assignment. Before Greenberg could protest, his friend had gone and he was left alone in the crowded, busy and noisy station. Greenberg was terrified, but somehow he made his way back to the campus, bumping into people and objects in his way. He stumbled and fell, cut his forehead and shins. It was the worst couple of hours of my life he has said in a number of interviews. Back on campus, he bumped into a man. It was Garfunkel. It turned out that his friend had followed Greenberg all the way. He'd been there all along, watching him. As quoted in rockandrollgarage.com, Greenberg says, Arthur knew it was only when I could prove to myself I could do it that I would have real independence. And it worked. Because after that, I felt I could do anything. That moment was the spark that caused me to live a completely different life, without fear, without doubt. Greenberg went on to Harvard and Oxford and eventually became a pioneer in information technology, had an illustrious career in numerous US government roles, including foreign relations, and was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I'll put links to my research on the show notes page. Also, Sandy Greenberg has written a memoir, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, with a foreword by Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
and an afterword by Margaret Atwood. The audible version of the book is read by Art Garfunkel, and it's fantastic, by the way. We all want a friend like Art Garfunkel. We all need a friend like him. But maybe we already have a friend like that in our lives, a friend who is always looking out for us, who wants the best for us, who is always taking care of us and keeping us safe. Hello, Anxiety, my old friend. What if we used different language to describe our relationship with anxiety? What if, instead of words of battle, we used words of friendship? What if we simply live with anxiety, like flatmates or cohabitees? What if we listen to our anxiety, sit with her, have a chat? Instead of battling her, we could collaborate with anxiety, work with her. Instead of giving in to anxiety, we could reassure her, have a laugh, be kind to her. When my old friend Anxiety thinks about me driving at night, she's looking out for me. She wants me to be safe during that journey in the darkness. What if you can't keep to the road because you can't see the edges properly? You might veer into a ditch or an oncoming car. What if the glare of the headlights blinds you? What if you misjudge distances and objects? You could have an accident, hurt yourself, hurt other people. And... What if I responded to my dear friend Anxiety as I would to a sensible, caring friend? Gosh, Anxiety, you make some really good points. I haven't driven in the dark for years, that's true. London's well-lit streets at night are not at all like the dark country lanes of Oxfordshire. It's sensible, really, to worry that I might cause an accident due to my lack of experience of driving along unlit country roads. How do I become experienced? by actually having the experience of driving in the dark. I could try driving along the dark roads at night bit by bit. I could start off driving in the well-lit streets of Oxford, then maybe do a short stretch of the ring road, and then a small bit of dark countryside. I could ask my partner to come with me, and she can take over at any point when I feel it's all getting a bit too much. My partner and other friends have said to me that they don't like driving in the dark either. They also find the glare of headlights dazzling. They have to concentrate harder so it can be more tiring. They all understand my friend Anxiety's worries. One friend said, If you're really worried about being involved in a nighttime accident because of your lack of experience, that is a valid concern. You don't need to force yourself to drive in the dark. There are often plenty of people who would be happy to give you a lift. And anyway, it's better for the planet if we all minimise the number of cars when we head off somewhere. It's been really helpful to me hearing that other people find night driving difficult. It's not just me. It's also helpful to know that I have choices. I could gain more experience bit by bit with baby steps... Or I could just relax into catching lifts and helping to save the planet. It's all up to me in any given moment. Thank you, Anxiety, my dear friend, for this helpful conversation. And what about Anxiety at work? 
how might this old friend have helped me there? This conscious awareness of anxiety as a friend is too late for what happened during my working life in a law firm, because now I've retired from corporate life. Back then, all I knew was that it felt like I was in the wrong place and the wrong job. And that showed in my increasingly bad appraisals. My supervising partners could tell I was not performing well. And for a period, it looked like my career was in jeopardy, which of course made my anxiety even worse. I couldn't afford to lose my job. And beyond that, it would be so humiliating and shameful. But the law firm's approach was supportive and creative instead of draconian. A role came up in-house at one of their clients, and they put me forward for it. It was a project management role rather than a legal one. The law firm benefited in helping out their client to recruit a strong candidate, and the company benefited from having a senior lawyer in their midst, and the role suited me perfectly. I could use the skills of a lawyer, but without actually being a lawyer. The role was practical and required a systems approach that appealed to my efficiency and organising skills. I was also able to use my collaborative style and bring different factions to work together, rather than impose the usual adversarial approach of most lawyers. And best of all, I did not need to know any law. Hallelujah! I thrived in that role for the next decade till I was able to retire from corporate life. I went down to four days a week and alongside my corporate career, I worked on my creative projects, co-authoring the social media chapters of a business book entitled International Communication Strategy and developing my solo theatre piece and related book memoir, Bound Feet Blues. I performed the theatre show to sold-out audiences at the Tristan Bates Theatre in central London, gave a TEDx talk, and hosted my other podcast, Creative Conversations, all the while excelling at my project management role in the City of London. During that amazing decade, I did not feel that old nausea every morning, nor a sense of not being able to do my job. I was confident in who I was and what I was doing. My creative activities gave me a sense of flow and identity that supported my corporate career, and vice versa. I was in the right place and in the right job career-wise and doing the right work in my creative life. My dear friend Anxiety could rest up and enjoy the fruits of her labour. In my previous unhappy period in a law firm, my old friend Anxiety had been telling me and my employers very loudly and clearly that the life of a lawyer was not for me. I tried to shut her up and cover up my lack of interest, but it was no use. And for an awful period, I was miserable, doing badly and losing the respect of my colleagues. Despite performing at a very high level, I was not excelling and the cracks were showing. If it had not been for the law firm's supportive approach in securing me another role, it could have all ended in disaster. Looking back, 
Perhaps I might have helped myself more proactively by listening to my dear friend Anxiety and taking action to look for something that would have suited me more. In the end, I was fortunate in that the law firm helped me do that. The lesson for me to learn for the future is to listen more consciously to this expression of anxiety. And perhaps another lesson is that sometimes I don't have to find the solution myself. There are others who are able and willing to help, even from unexpected quarters. My employers, whom I felt I was letting down, engaged actively to solve the problem in a positive way. The end result was a win for them, as well as for me. And freeing up the energy spent being miserable and trying to do something that did not suit me meant that I had boundless energy for my creative work alongside my corporate career. Each aspect of my life became nourishing and sustaining to the other and contributed to one of the happiest and most successful decades of my life. I'm not telling you all this to show off or brag, to say, look at me, I've solved my anxiety problem. In many ways, it's the opposite. For a long time, I felt ashamed of my anxiety about night driving and ashamed also of my sense of failure around my legal career and the anger that masked it. Thinking about Sandy Greenberg's story and that moving phrase from the Simon and Garfunkel song, Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, prompted me to revisit these examples of anxiety in my life and to reflect on how I was able to reframe my experience of anxiety, my own personal darkness. Changing the story I have up till now told myself about how anxiety has shown up in these kinds of situations has helped dissipate some of that feeling of shame. I feel a little less helpless and a little less in the power of what might be perceived as an irrational force I cannot control. I see that anxiety has been a friend and ally in the past, even when I was not aware of it. Anxiety is actually quite rational in telling me that there is danger in driving in the dark and misery in working at the wrong job. Thinking about anxiety as my old friend is prompting me, I hope, to notice more consciously now when anxiety is present and to actively take a moment to listen to what she might be trying to say to me. That diminishes a little the visceral cry inside me that is saying, make it stop, I don't want to feel this awful anxiety. Quick, do something, hide, avoid, fight, just so long as I can get rid of this anxious feeling. Instead, I try to soothe that cry, soften it and say, hello, anxiety, my old friend, what's up? What's going on? One moment in Sandy Greenberg's story, which I find very powerful, is the incident at Grand Central Station, when Art Garfunkel suddenly leaves Greenberg all alone, blind and disorientated in the fast-moving and uncaring crowds. Greenberg is forced to find his own way back to the campus, stumbling, knocking into people, terrified and angry with his friend. But he makes it. Bruised, shattered, exhausted and shaken. But he makes it. 
And the important point is that he makes it on his own. He does not know that his friend is with him all along. In his mind, he has no safety net, no one to help him. He absolutely has to rely on himself. And he succeeds all on his own. It is a turning point for him. He sees his own courage and determination. He sees what he has achieved. He can trust in himself, believe in himself. Yes, it's a wonderful thing to have a friend by his side, but he does not need to cling to that friend. He is his own man. He has the inner resources and also the skill to get himself where he wants to go. I love this part of his story because it reminds us that life is not about avoiding difficult moments or not feeling pain or fear or doubt or uncertainty. Life throws up challenges and each time we have to face something new or difficult, we will feel a range of emotions, including anxiety. And it's only in accepting that challenge and moving forward that we can grow. We learn self-reliance. We learn to trust ourselves, believe in ourselves. We learn resilience. It's not about staying home instead of driving at night. It's about finding a healthy solution that enables me to live a full, rich life while being mindful of what my dear friend Anxiety has to say. It's not about getting myself signed off work endlessly or letting depression keep me in a bubble or using the energy of anger to propel me through life. It's about asking for help and working collaboratively to make changes in a way that can bring positive outcomes for everyone involved. So living with my old friend anxiety is not necessarily about changing the uncomfortable, gut-twisting feeling into a cosy, chummy amiability. Sometimes it involves stepping up to the challenge, feeling the tumultuous feelings and moving forward into the new moment. That new moment that terrifies us, but that will transform us into a stronger, more resilient, wiser and more confident self. I'm not sure that I will rise to the challenge every time. I expect I shall still feel small and powerless at times, and anger will still leap up to protect me. But I'd like to think that if I can take a moment to remember that anxiety is my friend, I will not need to cower before her or do battle with her. Instead, Would I be able to stand side by side with my friend so we can both move forward together? Could this be a more healthy way of facing the challenges in my life? I should say this is not a prescription for anyone else's anxiety. It's a description of my own process that I feel has been helpful to me. Each person's story and experience is unique and As I've said in this and other episodes, there is no magic cure or solution, and I'm certainly not offering anything like that. My hope is that by sharing my experience and reflections, and the stories of my guests and others, these podcasts might prompt you to reflect on your own relationship with anxiety, and whether seeing your anxiety as a friend or ally may, or may not, be helpful 
to you. You can find links to some of the things I have mentioned, as well as photos and credits, on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage, or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. Today, I've shared my own personal relationship with anxiety. In upcoming episodes, we will have a range of different perspectives. There will be an episode on money, anxiety and making big decisions with financial advisor Peter Ditchburn and another episode on laughing in the face of anxiety with stand-up comedian Alex Farrow. Please do subscribe or follow this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, and these episodes will appear in your pod listening app as soon as they are published. I'm keen to share stories from people who have found ways to live positively with anxiety. It would be amazingly helpful for me and also our listeners to hear from you if you have a story about transforming anxiety for good, or how you have discovered ways to thrive in your life. If you'd like to share your story, please email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. Their content is for informational purposes only. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. Today I talked about thinking of anxiety as our friend. What other aspects of anxiety do you feel we could explore in these podcasts? Drop me a line with your ideas and let's see if we can unpack some of them in future episodes. You can email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage if you want to find the show notes page and other episodes or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I am at tigerspirituk. There is also a dedicated anxiety advantage Twitter account at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.